Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. And today we bring you the story of the birth of the NBA. What led to those original owners deciding that a new league was needed? And what were the factors involved in making the whole thing happen? What were the logistical issues that the original owners needed to address to get this new league off the ground? My goal is to take you back to the beginning of how the most successful basketball brand in the world got its start. As usual, it is important to give some background and context to help understand the forces at play when the NBA had its start. From 1891 when the game was invented until 1940, the game of basketball had yet to fully mature. This time frame represents basically the first 50 years of the sport. On the positive side, the game spread extremely quickly throughout North America and around the world. Within just 10 years of its invention, high schools and universities had formed teams and were playing against each other regularly. Barnstorming teams had been created where players could play for money. Now this was all great for the development of the game. On the negative side, the game was being played by different rules in different parts of the country and the world. Some teams played games on courts that were 90 feet long, approximately the size of the current NBA courts. Other teams played on courts that were only 60 feet long, which is what an 8-year-old would play on. Some teams played in facilities that had a low ceiling, making it impossible to shoot the ball because the ball would hit the ceiling. In that situation, the only shot that would work was a layup. There was also no standard ball to play with. A number of different companies were making equipment and the balls were different sizes depending on where you were playing. It really was the basketball equivalent of the Wild West. Everybody was playing the game differently. As we get into the 1910s and 1920s, formal leagues started to form in various large cities around the country, but most teams were not able to travel very far, at least not easily. Today we take it for granted that teenagers on an AAU team will jump on a plane and travel halfway across the country for a big tournament. In the early part of the 20th century, there was passenger train travel, but not much else. Technically, you could travel long distances by car, but not everyone had a car yet. The airplane had just recently been invented, but the idea of mass passenger air travel did not exist the way we think of it today. So, train travel was the only reasonable option, but it could take days and was quite expensive. So, most of those very early leagues were limited to just one city. For example, Boston had its own league of 8 to 12 teams. The same was true in New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, Pittsburgh, and Washington, D.C. Professional teams would travel almost completely within their own cities. By the 1930s and early 1940s, more Americans owned cars. Local highways were being constructed, making car travel faster and easier. Passenger air travel was in its infancy, and now there were more options for traveling, and it was getting easier and a little bit cheaper. And now you saw the growth of the regional leagues, like the Northeastern Leagues and the Midwest Leagues. 
These leagues now included teams from a handful of states located in the same region of the country. And then America entered World War II, which had minimal impact on basketball. While many players joined the war effort, the very tallest players were not able to serve because of their height. The American military has a limit of about 6 foot 6 or 198 centimeters, which meant that the tallest basketball players could not serve, so the only alternative for them was to stay home and keep playing basketball. However, after the end of the war, all of those players were returning and life in America was going back to normal. Other sports also benefited from having their athletes return from the war to resume their playing careers. By the 1940s, there was a national-level league called the National Basketball League, or NBL, and they had teams from Chicago to Rochester, New York. That league was put together by men who had a real passion for basketball and wanted to see basketball reach the same level of popularity as baseball or boxing, which were the two most popular sports in the United States at the time. But a new group of owners had their own idea for a new league based mostly in the East Coast. These owners who came together to form the league that would eventually become the NBA were not basketball men. They were hockey men and arena operators. These men were either connected to the National Hockey League or NHL or the smaller American Hockey League or AHL. Their primary motivation was money. These were mostly businessmen who owned arenas and they were trying to come up with a way to fill the arenas on some of those winter nights where the arena was empty. These arenas hosted hockey games, college basketball, ice shows, the circus, rodeos, concerts, political rallies, or anything where you needed a large room. They found that in the wintertime they had trouble booking events in their arenas outside of hockey games. They thought that starting a basketball league would fill those empty nights on their arena calendars and that that would be a great idea. They really did not know anything about basketball. They just did not like seeing their arenas empty for too many nights. They knew that college basketball was very popular and a big moneymaker for the arenas. Most arenas would schedule regular double headers of college basketball games. They figured that they could capitalize on the popularity of some of these college stars as they moved into the professional ranks. Back then, college basketball was so much more popular than professional basketball. So, unlike today, it was not a given that a top college star automatically moved to the professional ranks. Often, for these players, it made more sense to use their degree to get a regular corporate job because it paid more than professional basketball. But this is what the original owners were thinking. What if they could convince more of these players to play professionally? After all, they still had the rest of their lives to work a regular job. A couple of these original owners were Walter Brown, who was the president of the Boston Garden, and Ned Irish, the owner of Madison Square Garden. The rest of the group, except one, were all arena operators, who also owned the hockey teams that played in their arenas. They were all members of the Arena Managers Association of America, so they already had relationships as they had to coordinate their schedules with each other and with the various organizations that used their arenas for their show. So getting together to form a new sports league completely made sense for them. They already knew each other. However, they did have to contend with the fact that there was already a top professional basketball league that had been operating for years. This other league, the NBL, had teams that would eventually become the LA Lakers, Philadelphia 76ers, Sacramento Kings, Atlanta Hawks, and Detroit Pistons. This league also had some of the top basketball stars under contract, like George Mikan. So this would be an uphill battle. But the owners of the new league had hockey to fall back on in case their new league did not work out. It was no guarantee that the league would be a success. All of these owners had been around long enough to see other leagues come and go. So that is the background and context of how the NBA was formed. Now this is a good place to take a break, and I'll be right back with the actual start of this new adventure.
This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome back to the show and let us continue with the story. I have already shared the background and the landscape in which the original owners started their new league. So now it was time for the prospective owners to get together and sign all of the necessary paperwork to make this all happen. All of the owners met together in New York City on June 6, 1946 to formalize the new league and to establish the 11 new teams that would play in the inaugural season. By the way, these were 11 brand new teams. None of these teams existed before the forming of the new league. This little detail was a bit unusual. Most leagues up until this point were formed from existing teams that left their old league and needed a new league to join. So this was 11 new teams starting from scratch. The name that they settled on for this new league was the Basketball Association of America, or BAA. The league selected a man by the name of Maurice Podoloff to be the first president of the BAA. He was a lifelong hockey man who was already the president of the American Hockey League and would keep that position. In essence, he was the commissioner of two different sports leagues at the same time. And Podoloff was an interesting man. As I mentioned, he did not know basketball and was not particularly passionate about it. But what he did know was how to fill an arena. He knew what it took to sell tickets, whether it was hockey, the circus, an ice show, or any other event. He knew that very quickly they would have to start getting the best college players to join their league. So they kicked off that first season in the fall of 1946 with those 11 teams. Those teams were the Washington Capitals, Philadelphia Warriors, New York Knicks, Providence Steamrollers, Boston Celtics, Toronto Huskies, Chicago Stags, St. Louis Bombers, Cleveland Rebels, Detroit Falcons, and Pittsburgh Ironmen. Of those original 11 teams, only the Warriors, Knicks, and Celtics are still playing in the NBA today. All of the other teams eventually went out of business. These were the humble beginnings of the NBA, and this is how they got started. Two years later, in 1948, they convinced some of the NBL teams to switch leagues and join the NBA. Now, that switchover led to a merger between the BAA and the NBL that formed what we now know as the NBA. And I covered that story of the merger back in episode 46, in case you want to go back and check that out. So there we have the start of what is now the NBA. It was basically started by a bunch of hockey and arena owners who just needed to fill their arenas with extra events, and they thought that professional basketball was just the thing to do it. Today, they are the most successful basketball brand in the world. Here is a personal story of how far the NBA reaches. I was once on vacation with my wife to Europe, we were in Paris waiting to catch the Eurostar, which is a train that took us to London for the next leg of our trip. I was wearing my Lakers hat as usual. One of the train station employees stopped me and asked if I was American. Of course, I said yes. Then he asked me if I had ever seen a Lakers game in person. Again, I said yes. I had been to many Lakers games. I told him that I had seen Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, Patrick Ewing, and Charles Barkley all play in person. We chatted for a bit, and after a while, he told me that his biggest dream was to come to the United States and see NBA basketball in person. NBA basketball is now broadcast in almost every country in the world, and it attracts the greatest players in the world into a single league that stands above all the others. Just think, all of that started from the practical need to fill some arena dates during the East Coast winters of the 1940s. So there is a story of how the NBA got started and what the motivations were behind its founding. 
Join us next week when we share the story of a game that nobody saw. It was a game that was played illegally between a black team and a white team in the 1940s in the segregated South. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Also, go ahead and give us a rating and a review, and that will help others to find this podcast more easily. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.